Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series, Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Matthew Modine. By the time he was offered the starring role in Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, Modine had already worked with some of our finest directors, including Alan Parker, John Sayles, and Robert Altman. Mr. Modine immortalized his Full Metal Jacket experience in Full Metal Jacket Diary, which can be purchased anywhere that books or interactive media are sold. I was in Los Angeles at the, this restaurant uh, with my friend David Allen Greer, and we were eating pancakes. And it happened to be in that restaurant where Woody Allen had uh, thought he was putting the car in reverse, and he put it in drive and drove into the restaurant. <laughs> and we were joking that uh, we were happy that Woody Allen was uh, in New York, and there was no sign of Diane Keaton in the restaurant because in, in movies, when a car drives into a restaurant, it's funny, and in real life, when somebody does that, people get crushed and killed. And, and my friend David Allen Greer and I happened to have been sitting in this seat uh, talking about that uh, when opposite me was a was another young actor named Val Kilmer, and Val was 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 giving me these dirty looks and uh, kind of mumbling to himself. And I asked David, I said, unless this guy has Tourette's. Um, He's he's giving me the hairy eyeball and and David looked over his his shoulder and he says oh uh, that's Val Kilmer he's a cool guy and he got up and he went over and started talking to him David Allen had worked with him uh, with some, teaching him some songs for a movie that that Val Kilmer had done called Top Secret mm -hmm. and um, so he called me over to uh, introduce me to Val Kilmer and I said hey how you doing my name's Matthew and he goes yeah I know who you are. Because I'm sick of you, man. And at that particular moment in my career, it was I was on a fantastic run of movies. I'd done Harold Becker's Vision Quest. I did uh, Mrs. Sofal, where I played Mel Gibson's brother with Diane Keaton. And then I had just finished Birdie, and, and mm. Val Kilmer then said, and, and now you're doing uh, Full Metal Jacket. And I knew that Kubrick was casting the film, but, but Kubrick was requiring that everyone send in a videotape audition, which at that time was very difficult because you had to have access to a big VHS camera and or or the money to be able to go into some kind of studio and, and put yourself on tape. And I just couldn't be bothered to, to do it and, and hoped that, you know, if Kubrick was interested, maybe he'd see one of these films that I had just completed. Um, so... Long story short, uh, I, I I ran out of the restaurant after I finished my pancakes and called up my manager and said that this guy had just told me that he heard I was doing Stanley Kubrick's new movie. Um, and he said he didn't know anything about it. And I said, I don't either. So why don't we call Warner Brothers and get him to send Vision Quest to him? And then I'll call Alan Parker in London and get Alan Parker to send uh, a piece of film because Alan was editing Birdie at the time over mm -hmm. to Kubrick and 
um, I went back to New York, and I guess it was probably a month later, I heard the mail slot open on the, my front door, and a script got slid through it, and it was from Stanley Kubrick asking me to read the script and consider being in his film. Wow. I would think that as a young actor, who'd ha- you had a lot of success and, and terrific collaborations prior to Full Metal Jacket. Um, and you you obviously love the art form. What role did Kubrick's films play in your life up to that point? Well, my dad was a drive-in theater manager, and the Kubrick films weren't really the kind of movies I would have seen at my dad's drive-in. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were they were films that you had to, to search out and find. I mean, watching 2001 A Space Odyssey at a drive-in movie theater would have been a, a miserable experience um, because because of the sound and the and the and the entire art direction of the film the photography of the film would have been lost in at a drive-in movie you know drive-ins were for westerns cowboy movies and uh, horror movies and you know TNA yeah. you know, swinging swinging stewardess kind of movies um so there were occasional art films that would make their way to and, and translate well into a drive-in, but but Kubrick's films weren't those kind of movies that that they didn't deserve to be played in a drive-in. They deserved to be seen in a movie theater. So I was certainly conscious of Stanley Kubrick and the reputation and the 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 uh, the myth, you know, the myth of Stanley Kubrick. But um, I wasn't an accolade. So when when that script came through the door. And I started reading it. Of course, I was I was incredibly excited. First of all, just the fact that how did he find me? How did he find my address and <laughs> and have a script mailed to my house that didn't go through an agency? You know, it wasn't mailed to me by my agent. It was it was arrived at my house through the mail slot. You know, that just adds to you know his amazing aura of power. Yeah. Tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I I believe I read that. Four of your brothers and a sister actually served in the war. Um, well, so my, my oldest brother, Mark Mark Jr., he he did. He he went to Vietnam. My brother Michael and my brother Russell joined at the time, but didn't didn't uh, didn't travel to Vietnam. Okay. Um, but my sister Elizabeth, I think my, she wanted to be a nurse, and I'm not sure if she ever got. They were all in the Navy, by the way. Um, I'm not sure that she ever got out of Maryland. Um, if she ever spent time on a ship, um, her her life was kind of a mystery to us, the entire family. After she turned 18, I think she just really wanted to get out of town, and so she yeah. joined the navy and disappeared. And we didn't see her till she was 30 years old. She wow. just went off off the radar. Yeah. But how did that experience? Because you grew up in a household that that knew of war and and the military form how did that experience kind of uh, inform your perception of that character in this film well I, I guess it was also my uncle wilder who who flew a b17 in the second world war and i would later make a film called memphis bell where i, I actually wore my uncle's dress uniform and and played mm-hmm. played the pilot of a b17 so it, that was a very special thing and then my father was in the merchant marine so there was always a family history of uh, participating in uh, conflicts overseas. So 
for this opportunity to work on this film on the heels of Streamers, which uh, which is a play written by David Rabe that was made into a film by Robert Altman, um, which was a huge film for my career. We won the Best Acting Award at the Venice Film Festival with that. Um, and then Birdie, which was a Second World War film or Korean War film, I forget what it was in the book, that that Alan Parker updated to Vietnam. Um, and then now with Kubrick and, and this opportunity. So it's kind of a trilogy of Vietnam films for me. And yeah. I guess I was, since I was a child with my, my, my brothers in the Navy gone during the time of the war, the, the war can be something that's very abstract because it's not something that, uh, you know, it, it, like the like the war in Iraq, I'm, it, it's something I think for a lot of young people something very abstract. But when you have a, a family member that's participating in it, it changes the it changes the perception of the war. It becomes something that's very real. And having my brothers overseas, when I would come home from school and and sit down and watch the evening news with Walter Cronkite and him sort of giving the baseball scores of how many of theirs had been killed and how many of ours had been killed and these these strange names, you know, Kisan and Saigon and mm -hmm. they were they, they, they were they were such uh kind of mystical places that yeah. and, and, and I, I really wanted to to understand the war. And after having completed Full Metal Jacket my feeling is is the Vietnam War is something that none of us will ever understand. It, it's something that is uh, beyond understanding and interpretation. Um, and sadly, I think that there's just uh, that we have a terrible love of war, and all too often we use force to solve problems rather than reason. Yeah. And just to bring this all back to Stanley Kubrick, I think that if you look at all of his films from Certainly, Paths of Glory, 2001, uh, in Full Metal Jacket, and, 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 and spiced into each of his films is the idea that if we don't solve, learn to solve our problems in peaceful, intelligent ways, it's going to bring the end of, of everything we struggle for as a culture and, and what we call humanity. Mm -hmm. There was... The way he chose to tell stories, and Full Metal Jacket uh, included, there's a kind of an ambiguity uh, to it, uh, which isn't something that audiences are necessarily conditioned to respond to as well. I mean, he doesn't ingratiate himself to an audience. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, and I think that's why people miss the compassion that, that's present in his films, too. I'm glad you said that because I, I think his films are, are wonderfully compassionate. Um, what they do is hold the mirror up to society and show you all the the wrinkles and pimples, uh, and, and rather than creating it, uh, uh, you know, shooting life through gauze and and Vaseline, that he he tells a story about who we are and what we are that uh, and. It, it, and, and, and offers the opportunity for us to to, to see that and, under, and and try to understand that if we if we don't look for peaceful resolution to our problems, we create unbelievable agony in the world. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think that's apparent in all of his films. And 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 you know this is one of the things that will shock people 
is that contrary to that myth that Stanley Kubrick was an unbelievably loving person, you know, somebody who was incredibly generous, um, certainly to his family and his friends, uh, but to other filmmakers. You know, he was, he was uh, you know, I, I, I meet directors, young directors all the time that, that, that say that they got a call from Stanley Kubrick uh, complimenting them on uh, the work that they'd done and asking questions about how, what kind of camera, what kind of lenses they used and why they, you know, curious why they made choices that they made. Um, and, and I think that includes, I believe, Darren Aronofsky because it was one of the last directors I talked to Stanley about before he passed away. Um, he thought Darren Aronofsky was a terrific filmmaker, um, mm. all the way to my first director that I worked with, um, Robert Altman. Tell me about. I understand that he did not. He did not talk about or go into the meaning of material. Uh, but what were your conversations with him like? Well, I think that he was very curious about truth and and. And what is truth, and how do we define what truth is? I guess the, I mean, the best example that I can I can find was there was a day, and I wrote about this in my book, uh, Full Metal Jacket Diary. It was part of my diary that I was I took on the responsibility of th- that I had no business taking on, which was the was the scheduling of the film, and and that we before the end of the first week we were already a week behind and by the end of the first month we were still a month behind and I felt that being the the lead actor in his film that that I took the responsibility of that 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 we're not moving forward because of something that I was doing which was ridiculous because it had nothing to do with me and and I, I felt like I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know how to play this character that Stanley Kubrick was giving me an opportunity to play, and I, I knew it was a really important film. I knew this was a really difficult character, maybe the dip, most difficult character I'd ever played. And I was wandering around in a field, and I saw Stanley driving across it in his Jeep, and I tried to hide in the in the grass so he wouldn't see me. And of course he did, and he drove across the field. And, and, and drove up and said, hey, you know, jump in, I'll give you a ride to the set. And I said, no, no, it's okay, I'll, I'll walk. And he, he could see that I was disturbed and upset, and he said, what's wrong? And I said, well, Stanley, uh, I, I don't know how to play this role. I don't, I don't, know, um, I don't know what you want from me. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And he shut the Jeep off, and he pulled on his beard, and he uh, scratched his scratched his forehead and he said listen I, I don't want you to play anything I just want you to be yourself and I said yeah sure Stanley okay yeah <laughs> I'll, just be my, I'll just be myself and he uh, he said jump in the jeep I'll give you a ride to set I said no no it's okay I, I'm going I'm to walk and he drove off and I wrote in my diary that I, I know the important part of that sentence was to be and that, that not to play, but to be, and it's it's something that if you read the whole diary is is a, is a is a continuing theme throughout the 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 diary of a young man. I was you know in my early twenties working with this arguable genius and learning to to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll use uh, 
Lee Ermey as an example. Lee Ermey was hired to be the technical advisor on the film, and uh, it was when he was auditioning the extras on the film, and he he had Tim Colcheri, who becomes the helicopter. Uh, he's shooting the helicopter, the waste gunner, and the helicopter, you know, saying, get some, get some. And I say, how do you shoot women and children? And he says, easy, you just don't lead them as much. That was the drill instructor. That's Tim Colcheri. He's a really nice man, a really wonderful actor. And Stanley wanted him to practice with the extras that were working on the, uh, that, that were auditioning for the film. And he'd yell at him for a while, practice some lines that he was going to say as the drill instructor, and get tired, and his throat would hurt. And so he'd say, I don't want to do it anymore. But still, we had you know 25 extras that, that still needed to be auditioned and put on tape for Stanley to, to look at, to decide who was going to be in the film. So Lee Ermey would then step in front of the camera and start to audition these kids. And Lee Ermey is Lee Ermey. He's not any different than what he is in the film, in life. And... Stanley would look at the the videotape and see Tim Colcheri, who was acting, playing the role, doing a good job. But then Lee Ermey would get in front of the camera, and he was. He wasn't playing. He was. And that's why I say this is a constant theme in the diary, is that, that Stanley wasn't looking for something that's artificial. He's looking for something that is. That and 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 Lee Ermey wasn't acting. He he was. He was he was being the drill instructor yeah and that's important it's it's and and when i think of someone like james dean or marlon brando or jack nicholson or you know uh any al pacino i i I, there are young people and, and stanley kubrick any great artist picasso matisse that when you try to be somebody else when you try to play something when you try to act something you often fail and and the genius of of someone like Stanley Kubrick or any of those other artists that I just mentioned is that sometimes we are blessed to have confidence in who we are and we be what we are. And that's what Stanley was trying to get at. He didn't want somebody to play something. He wanted them to be it. And and he gave he had the luxury of time, uh which I would imagine was a great luxury for for you as an actor too. Could you give me a sense of the, the process of discovery that took place from sp- spending so much time on any given scene? Well, I mean, for instance, he, he said that I, I get accused of uh, doing so many takes. And I, I do a lot of takes because actors don't know their lines. And I was like, what do you mean? I know my lines. And it, it wasn't until I finished the film, I met a man named Marvin Minsky, who it turned out, was somebody who was responsible for this expression, artificial intelligence. And Marvin Minsky was a friend of Stanley Kubrick's who had worked with him on 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was just one of those weird coincidences of life, of serendipity. And because I met Marvin Minsky and I said, oh my God, you know, I, I loved your book it, it called uh, The Society of Mind. I said, it was such a, such a great book. And... Uh, I, I said that it was it was after reading the book I understood something that Stanley Kubrick was talking about about lines. He says he, actors he, he gets accused of doing a lot of takes because actors don't know their do know their lines. And in your book you talk about the process that a child goes through of learning to discover that the hand is part of the arm, which is part of the body, which is a part of the baby. You know that all of these 
that a child reaches for something, you know, sticks his finger in his eye, and it, that that muscle memory of of learning how to use your hand, how to how to use your arm to reach for a glass of water, that the baby spills all over his face, you know, that then learns to put to to, to bring the cup of water to the face and drink without spilling it all down the front. These are all things that we have to to learn. We have to teach ourselves how to use our hand and and to be able to drink something to get to the point where as as a more skilled person you can pick up a cup of tea on a saucer and walk across the room and 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 stub your toe on the furniture and tamp your hand in a way so that you don't spill the tea and i was telling i said that's what stanley kubrick was talking about knowing your lines is like to go through the process that a baby goes through of knocking the cup over spilling the cup to being to get to the point where you can walk across the room with a cup of tea and a saucer and not spill it. And that's when Marvin Minsky told me, he said, you know, Stanley Kubrick and I were great friends. And I said, oh, of course you were. And th- But that's what Stanley Kubrick was talking about, knowing your lines. You have to have them in your body so that you're not acting, you're, but you're being. You, you, you're not thinking about what it is you're going to say. You're saying it. You know, to yeah. get away from the whole artifice of acting to get to a place that's that's something different, you know, it's it's something much deeper, something that's in inside of you and part of your your subconscious. There's there have been you know quite a few movies about war and the Vietnam conflict in particular. What do you think the the legacy of, of Full Metal Jacket is? Well, I know I know that there's a tremendous. Uh, audience for for the film and it continues to to find relevance in in the world that we live in where a lot of other war movies uh become something comical they become something that's uh an uninteresting uh but this is the genius of Stanley Kubrick I remember him telling a story about the the, the queen was uh going to go to the opera and they said oh, she said the queen said oh what's on tonight and they said uh, La Traviata, and she said, "Oh, I've seen it." So, and he, it, and that was kind of lost on me. What, what Stanley was trying to say, he was saying that when something's a great piece of music, it, you know, it doesn't. You can listen to it over and over and over again. You can listen to Beethoven over and over and over again because there's always going to be something about the the subtlety of the music and the and the genius of the music that you're going to hear something new and when you heard it when you're 16 it was it was something when you hear it when you're 25 it's something quite different mm-hmm. and 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 a, and a film should be something like that like a piece of art that continues to to have relevance and uh, capture your imagination and and I and and, th- and I think you can say that with all of Stanley Kubrick's films from you know, from the early, even the killing, the, that you see the genius that Stanley Kubrick and and the films continue to have a relevance and a, and a mystical quality that that makes them relevant. And and Full Metal Jacket's legacy today, um, you know, I think it's it's weird because the street fighting that we were doing in the city of Way um, looks like the street fighting in the city of K- Kabul or F. You know, any take your take your pick of which city in Afghanistan or Iraq. Stanley found a deeper truth with Full Metal Jacket uh, that 
is fantastic and I, I don't know how he accomplished that but he did for instance if I use Lee Ermey uh, Captain I mean the Gunnery Sergeant Hartman when Gunnery Hartman's Gunnery Sergeant Hartman gets shot in the in the latrine by Private Pyle in another filmmaker's hands the same script this you know not changing any word of dialogue the audience might feel good you know they they might feel that that guy was a bad guy and he deserved to be shot and i've i've seen the film probably i don't know 15 or 20 times with an audience and i've never heard an audience not be horrified by what has happened and 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 not feel that that pile you know was right in killing him that 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 the gunnery sergeant hartman deserved to be killed because stanley even with everything that happens stanley makes you understand that all that drill instructor is trying to do is to teach those young people how to keep from getting killed you know to to be able to to survive in a situation that they're being sent to to fight in you know and I think that's an incredible accomplishment. Um, I was talking about the legacy of Full Metal Jacket, and I understand that that you've got a new project in the works that that will continue that legacy on. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, you know, I, I I had a diary that I kept while I was making the film. It was that little book that I had, and I was you see me writing in it quite often in the in the film. Once we're in Vietnam. And because um, we filmed Vietnam first, and then we went to boot camp, and, and the whole film was filmed in London, which is a surprise to a lot of people who didn't know that. Um, so, the the diary that I kept, um, I, I thought I would publish photographs that I took on the set. Uh, I had an old Rolleiflex camera that my friend Joe Kelly had given to me. Uh, he because he felt. Because he saw that I was, as I was getting ready to go to London to go meet and work with Stanley Kubrick, that I was starting to get a little bit nervous. So he gave me this old Rolleiflex camera, and he said, "You know, you should learn how to use it. Teach yourself how to use it. Learn the the subtleties of this camera, and then when you when you get to London, bring it to Stanley and show it to him, and he'll be really impressed because of his photography background that you know how to use a Rolleiflex." So I taught myself how to use the camera and. When Stanley saw it, he he told me, he said, "What are you doing with that old piece of junk?" And but I I fell in love with this camera, and I think for one of the perhaps the first times in one of his films, he he allowed a, uh, an actor to take pictures on on the set. So I, I took quite a few photographs with this beautiful camera, and and I always wanted to do something with with the prints. I gave prints to every you know all the actors and and Stanley. Uh, while I was making the film, and then I always wanted to do something with him, so I spoke to a book publisher, and he said, uh, "You know, these are beautiful. I'd I'd love to make a book with you." He said, "You're going to have to write a story about about the experience, you know, to go along with the photographs." And I said, "Well, you know, I kept a diary," and he said, "We'll transcribe it, and we'll see what we can pull from it." And the diary was a kind of an amazing journey about a young man going off to work with this incredible filmmaker and 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 all the insecurities that he feels and and the experiences that he has and um he obviously grows to love this director and 
uh, and is frustrated by all of the things that are happening happening around him environmentally. The Chernobyl was happening. You know, the, there was other films that were being offered that were that were being lost because, you know, I was in England for almost two years. So, the diary kind of follows the arc of 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 this period of my life, and it, it's it's a it's an amazing journey. It's kind of the heart of darkness kind of story, mm-hmm. and so. The book, when I published it, I wanted it to be something that Stanley Kubrick would think was beautiful and something that he would hold and say, this is fantastic. And unfortunately, Stanley passed away before the book came out, and I didn't get to share it with him. But but I know that he would have he would have loved the book. It's a it's a metal book, and it's got serial numbers on it. I wanted it to be like a piece of art, you know. So it was a limited edition book, and it sold out very quickly. And uh, and there were a lot of people that didn't get a chance to purchase it. And so, what's what's really exciting now is with people purchasing books uh, on iPads, is this opportunity to create a book that is a is an app for an iPad that would give you the opportunity to experience the book in a completely different way. You know, using the photographs that I took on the on the set. Um, I'll, use, I'll, I'll put in additional photographs that weren't in the uh, in the book. Um, the, the book is going to have a lot of, uh, of really interesting audio effects and uh, music, uh, you know. So, so it's going to be an interactive app for for people to be able to listen to and experience the book in a completely different way. Some of the people that were involved with the making of the film are going to be involved with the making of the book. Or the, or the, I should say, the app, and it's it's really really exciting. It sounds exciting. I, I mean, I have, I have the Full Metal Jacket Diary, and it, it, it's a beautiful package, and it's just a, it's a feast for anyone that that loves that film and loves the work of Kubrick. And uh, hearing about your experiences in, in in your photography is phenomenal. What, what's what's really important to me is because. I have such a tremendous respect and love for Stanley Kubrick that his standard of quality for for the work that he did um was something that was never compromised and and to to tell a story about the experience of working with him on Full Metal Jacket um it has to it has to be at a, a level of something that that he would give his uh, stamp of approval for so that's that's my gold standard is 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 Stanley Kubrick and his legacy, and that it, that that Stanley would say this is a really cool application for for an iPad, you know, for that experience of 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 learning about his making movies. And I could see where he would love he would love the idea of what you're doing with it because because he was crazy about uh, the latest technological advancements, and I heard he was a uh, a, a real uh, connoisseur of gadgetry and that kind of thing, so I think that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, also um, the prints from the book will. I'm going to be able to sell those to to people. So if you're, if there's a, you know, the I think everybody really loves the. I, I one day I I was taking, helping the prop guy putting stuff back onto his truck, and I picked up Stanley Kubrick's director's chair. And as I was walking to help him put it into the truck, there was this big chunk of concrete out in a field. And so I stuck the chair on this chunk of concrete. And, of course, the chair was too big for the chunk of concrete. And uh, I took a photograph of it. And while I thought it was kind of funny, 
at the time because Stanley's chair was too big for the concrete. In Stanley's passing, the chair has taken on a kind of it's a, it's taken on a kind of metaphor about that Stanley was too big for for the world, you know, yeah. his his yeah. art, his voice, his his creations, you know, that it's a beautiful photograph. It's on the cover of the Michel Chimet book about Kubrick. If you're a, a, a big shot director and you want a big fancy photograph of Stanley Kubrick's chair, <laughs> they'll be available on the fullmetaljacketdiary.com. dot com. 